The Momentary in Benville presents Grammy Award-winning country band Brothers Osborne, Saturday, July 15th, live outdoors on the Momentary Green. This concert is part of the Momentary's Live on the Green concert series. Brothers Osborne tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, July 10th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later today, we begin a few Mondays of sharing archive visits with Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center. He's away from our studio for a few weeks. This Monday, the origin of Daisy BB guns in Rogers. That's in today's second half hour. First, the Arkansas legislature swiftly passed the Arkansas Learns Act, an expansive 144-page education bill earlier this year. One group is trying to overturn the bill by putting it to a vote in November of 2024. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has the details on that process from petition to referendum. Last month, after three attempts, Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin approved the ballot title for a referendum on the sweeping education package known as the Arkansas Learns Act. Veronica McLean is the chair of Citizens for Arkansas Public Education and Students, or CAPES, the organization petitioning to get the referendum on the ballot. And while she says the AG's approval was a welcome surprise, there's still more work to be done before it's a victory. You know, we have to have 54,422 signatures. That's our that's our count. That is 6% of the registered voters who voted in the last um, governor's race. And so of that, we have to have 50 counties where we've collected signatures. And that is, each of those has to meet a certain threshold as well. And so it's 3% of the registered voters in that county. So our burden in Pulaski County where we have a lot of volunteers, is higher. So we have to have something over 12,000 signatures in Pulaski County. But there are some counties where we only need to have 200 signatures. And so obviously we need kind of both of those things. And the group now has until July 31st to get all of those signatures gathered and submitted to the Attorney General's office and the Arkansas Secretary of State. Josh Bridges is an election systems analyst for the Arkansas Secretary of State's office. He says the process for getting a ballot measure like this referendum in front of voters is precise. At this point, with new legislation in place, they can submit the language of their referendum to the attorney general's office uh, basically after the legislative session has, has ended. Uh, They can initiate a referendum on basically any law that the legislature enacts. They must do that um, within 90 days of the official adjournment of the legislature. So it's a pretty tight window for all the things that have to happen. And just to get to the petition stage, petitioners first have to get their ballot title approved by the attorney general, which is a change from the previous election. Kristen Netters from Higgins is program associate at the Public Policy Center of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. She says while this may seem confusing, it actually has a long precedent in the state. So the process changed for the 2022 election, and the 
the ballot title, all you had to do was file it with the Secretary of State's office, and then you can go about collecting signatures. And then after you turned in signatures, the State Board of Election Commissioners were charged with approving the ballot title. There was a lawsuit filed, and that process was deemed uh, unconstitutional or not correct. And in the last session this year, in 2023, uh, the the power to review ballot titles was put back under the Attorney General's office. So it's, you know, people might, if they're just now paying attention to the process, it might seem like a big change, but it's actually going back to the way it was for many decades. And the next step is actually getting canvassers out and in front of voters to sign the petition. And in the most recent legislative session, the requirements for gathering signatures was tightened. In May, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed House Bill 1419, which requires canvassers to get signatures from at least 50 of the state's 75 counties, up from just 15, as specified in the state constitution. The bill is being challenged in court by Republican Senator Brian King and the Arkansas League of Women Voters. Higgins says the process of gathering signatures has gotten a lot more complicated in the last decade. There's more rules for the canvassers or the people who are collecting voter signatures. Uh, There's a lot of detail that campaigns have to follow in terms of background checks. Uh, Is the person a paid canvasser or if they're a volunteer? There's a lot of paperwork changes. Uh, What happens if a signature on a petition doesn't match? Like, does it affect the rest of the, the signatures on that page? There's been a lot of laws and additional details passed uh, in the past decade uh, to uh, tighten that process. Um, So there are more hoops to jump through. And those hoops are what McLean and Capes are now having to navigate. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how many counties we have signatures in yet, but I know that we have volunteers in over 50 counties. She says since June 9th, when the ballot title was approved, Capes has been mobilizing volunteers across the state holding canvasser trainings and signing events, and most importantly, printing off their petition. Um, Because we have not only our ballot title, but also the full um, writing of the LEARNS Act that we had to condense down. And, And so it's about 23 pages per packet, and every packet has to have, you know, it. they stay together, right? So you can't just have the signature page. It has to be the whole thing because that way people can read it if they choose to. And, you know, we are following every rule that we can because we are, this is so, so important to us. So that printing cost is a big, big issue for us. And she says, while a lot of people across the state have expressed interest in signing the petition, they often don't realize the petition requires a physical signature. Now, the one thing that, you know, again, has been difficult is obviously letting people know, you know, you do have to physically sign an actual sheet of paper. We do have to check your voter registration because you have to be a registered voter in the state of Arkansas. And Bridges says the process for validating these petitions can be just as arduous. Once every petition part has gone through phase one of intake, we begin uh, the process of verification. We take the original petition, make a copy of it, make a copy of just the signature page, not the entire text. And verification takes place only on those copies. And verification consists of going through uh, an internally built 
uh, voter registration search that directly has voter registration data uploaded to it. We bring in more temporary workers and we literally go row by row on each signature page to look for two things. Number one, is this person that signed this petition a registered voter in Arkansas? And number two, were they registered to vote when they signed that petition? And if the petition fails to meet requirements but has at least 75% of the required valid signatures, the petitioners have 30 additional days to collect more signatures or demonstrate that the rejected signatures are valid. And Bridges says... While the process can be difficult and burdensome, he believes that it's important for ensuring the process is secure. As far as making sure that the petition itself is a legitimate citizen-initiated petition uh, that was circulated um, under the law and is legitimately showing what the people want, right? I feel like, you know, having some of these requirements and laws in place are necessary. In 2020 and 2022, the state legislature put forward ballot measures to change the citizen initiative process, but both were rejected by voters. And Arkansas is one of only 15 states in the U.S. that has the ability for citizens to put constitutional amendments, state laws, and referenda on the ballot. And Higgins says it's a right that is consistently utilized and upheld by Arkansans. The process itself was passed by voters over 100 years ago, and they use it pretty routinely um, every, the majority of every election Um, cycle, we do see several initiated acts or constitutional amendments from the voters uh, put on on the ballot. Uh, So in other states, the legislature might control the process more, or there might be um, some efforts for citizens to be able to, to put maybe a constitutional amendment on the ballot, but they don't have the same access for state laws and referendums like Arkansas does. And while McLean and her group would like to see the Learns Act overturned, she says this referendum is more than that. The people rule. That's our state motto, Regnat Populus, right? And so it is not constitutional to write laws and pass laws that can't be vetoed by the people. You know, I don't care which party you claim to be part of. As the people of Arkansas, this is a bipartisan effort, right? Because the people's rights are being trampled. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Daniel Carruth Stories, produced in the Karen Taha News Studio. Later today on our show, we go back to January to go back into the archives at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. It was then when Randy Dixon with the center delivered the story of Daisy BB guns in Rogers. Anyway, we've all had these little colloquialisms we use for superiority of things, but the saying in 1888, that's when this is, was, it's a daisy. That's in about 10 minutes on Ozarks at Large. To me, a leader is someone who influences others. That can be in any capacity, and I never associate leadership with title. To me, a leader is someone who coaches, guides, inspires, 
listens to and empowers others to work toward a shared or individual goal. What a leader is to me is a learner. I think a leader should always be in a state of trying to learn more. A leader can be a CEO of a company, a student in an MBA program, or a stay-at-home mom. Anyone can be a leader, but I've decided to focus on Latinas in leadership in Northwest Arkansas for this podcast. Throughout this five-part series, you'll hear personal stories from Latinas impacting and leading their community. As Latinas, we may all come from the same community, but our stories and the way to leadership are vastly different. My name is Wendy Echeverria, and this is Inspirando el Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas, coming out on KUAF or where you listen to podcasts. Charlie Daniels, who served as a statewide elected official in Arkansas for more than 30 years, has died. He served terms as Arkansas's land commissioner, secretary of state, and auditor. A native of Union County in South Arkansas, he also served in appointed positions during the Pryor and Clinton gubernatorial administrations. He was 83. Last month, Arkansas Congressman French Hill introduced the Flatside Wilderness Additions Act, the bill, if passed, would add about an additional 2,200 U.S. Forest Service acres to the Flatside Wilderness Area, which is part of the Washita National Forest. In an interview this weekend with KARK Channel 4's Capital View, Congressman Hill explained that obtaining the designation would help keep the land accessible to the public. It's taking national park land or national forest land, so existing public lands, and designating them as wilderness. And what that means in practicality is no road building, no motorized vehicles. It's a place to hunt, fish, backpack, climb, camp, uh, but in total pristine uh, wilderness or outdoor recreation experience. According to Hill's congressional website, the bill has the support of Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Construction is underway on what will be a new access point for the Razorback Greenway in Bentonville. The city started work on an elevated bridge that will allow pedestrians and cyclists to access the trail near the under-construction Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art expansion. The city's website places the estimated completion of the project for the middle of next year. And one former Arkansas Razorback baseball player is among those drafted on the first day of the Major League Baseball draft yesterday. Pitcher Jackson Wiggins was selected in the second round by the Chicago Cubs. Also during yesterday's first two rounds, four players who have signed to play at Arkansas out of high school were drafted and will now choose between becoming professionals or attending the U of A. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellens with me in the Anthony and Susan Roy News Studio. Ozarks at Large is Jacqueline Froelich. Hello. Hi, Kyle. Hello. Uh, you are going to give us an update on a story that we first had on the show a few weeks ago. There is this, what, 15-foot-tall white limestone obelisk um, that's in the Eureka Springs City Cemetery. Tell me about it. I first learned about this obelisk when I was contacted by Eureka Springs City Council member Harry Meyer. He was incredibly upset. This monument is no gravestone, I learned, and it holds a replica plaque, turns out, of the Great Seal of the Confederate States of America, which is a puzzle. For my report, I obtained cemetery records to dig into this, showing the obelisk was installed on one of two empty cemetery lots deeded to county resident by the name of Colton Massey. 
Massey is commander of the Sons of Confederate Veterans Seaborne Jones Cotton Camp in Eureka Springs, a group he created, a neo-Confederate patriot group. I want to point out again, you said that this was not a gravestone marker, so this wasn't even a marker for someone who would later be interred. No, it's a monument of some sort. Um, city officials, including the mayor, most members of the cemetery commission, were not aware that this was happening? Except for Bruce Wright. This is what I discovered. And um, he, at the time, was serving as cemetery superintendent. I called him to clarify how this monument was enabled to be erected in the cemetery. Right. He didn't call me back, but he emailed me a statement in response, and he later copied that statement to city officials, claiming he had sole authority to allow the installation as city superintendent. So I queried Colton Massey, who in several emails told me the monument, which cost over $10,000, was erected to honor Carroll County Confederates who served and died in the Civil War. He made no mention of the lot serving as a burial site to me. And to confirm if what Massey did was legal, I queried the Arkansas Municipal League and was told in a really uh, brief interview uh, with the official there, cemetery markers are a form of free speech, which means the monument, I assumed, I think others were assuming, could not be removed. You assumed and others assumed, but since your report aired, there's been a turn of events? It's taken complicated turns. First, listeners need to realize that it's likely the first Confederate monument in the South to be erected since the purge of more than 160 Confederate monuments and memorials removed two years ago due to Black Lives Matter protests, which I think we all remember. Eureka Springs Cemetery Commission Chair L.B. Wilson declined talking to me for my first report, which was a frustration, but he did issue a statement later saying the monument appears to be in compliance with Cemetery Commission policy. And he shared that with others. That's how I got a hold of it, through the Freedom of Information Act. I contacted him again late last week Mm -hmm. to see if he's changed his opinion. He responded pretty quickly via email this time, expressing concern about the lack of installation disclosure as well as the message the monument is sending. And um, I actually queried all five cemetery commissioners for my first report, and only Treasurer David Danvers agreed to speak on the record. The majority opinion by the commissioners is that the monument was approved pretty much not transparently, and three of us basically were horrified that um, it was allowed to be uh, be erected in the manner that it, that it was. Danvers told me he queried City Attorney Forrest Jacoby for an opinion, and I obtained those documents through a Freedom of Information Act request. Jacoby says, using a city burial plot for purposes other than for a burial or cremains is inappropriate. Okay. Danvers argues that Eureka Springs Historic Cemetery is not a memorial park. Our guidelines and rules and regulations specifically talk about burials. Right, and I just want to back up. So this cost $10,000. It was paid for with private money, right? We we have no idea who paid for it. Commissioner Danvers is investigating these things. 
he has asked the city attorney to consult with the municipal league on the legalities beyond what I asked. Mm -hmm. Another complication is that Colt Massey now claims the obelisk honors both Union and Confederate Civil War veterans, which is what he told a state reporter who picked up our story. The problem is Massey, in his initial email statement to me, which I recently shared with the mayor and commissioners, said the obelisk is strictly a Confederate monument. So I asked Commissioner Danvers if he believes that Massey has resorted to deception and fraud to erect his monument. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, he purchased that lot deceiving the public with the intent of erecting a monument. And your uh, email, which uh, you had sent to me and the commissioners, was really a blessing because I had pointed this out in my June 26th letter to the city attorney about now he had changed you know, his story. The point, Jacqueline, is we don't want any monuments, any act you know, type of active, socially active, whatever monuments in there, that's not the place for it in our cemetery. So we're not picking on the Confederates, period. Do we think we have an opportunity to have this removed? Absolutely, because of deceit and fraud. So what about uh, people who live in Eureka? What do they think of all this? Well, a lot of people didn't know about it. Mm. it like the commissioner and city officials didn't know about it. But word is slowly spread about the obelisk, but word has since accelerated after <laughs> I posted my report on Eureka Springs Community Facebook page. The thing is, Eureka Springs Cemetery rules require commissioners to respond to public complaints. So they met in late June and again last week to draft revisions to cemetery rules and guidelines to address this issue. Another meeting is planned this Wednesday at 9 a.m. at the cemetery office, and the public is invited to come so they meet Wednesday morning. Something may or may not be determined then? I mean, a change? I believe the Cemetery Commission will decide to change policy to prevent this sort of incident to occur, but then they'll have to send it forward to City Council to decide. In the meantime, they're going to continue to investigate who owns the burial plots beneath the monument, which remains unclear. Colton Massey has the deed, hmm. as well as checking with the State Municipal League to get their op opinion on this situation. All right. We'll continue to follow it. Thank you, Jacqueline Froelich, Ozarks at Large. You're welcome, Kyle. Ah, there it is. The holy grail of Christmas gifts, the Red Ryder 200-shot range model air rifle. This is Ozarks at Large. It's a Monday. It's time for Randy Dixon to bring in some archives and history. He's with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Say it with me, Kyle. You'll put your eye out. Or you'll shoot your eye out. I think it's the actual ah. line. But, uh, yeah, that's from A Christmas Story. Which is a movie that is... Literally run 24 hours a day, I think, on Christmas Day on TNT or TBS. Since 1983 <laughs> yes. when it came out. It's and a great movie. A great movie. And one of the, um, the part of the spine of the movie is that our main protagonist wants to receive a Daisy BB gun for Christmas. And his mother is worried that it's too dangerous. Yes, specifically a Red Rider. Specifically a Red Rider. With the compass yes. in, the, in the stock. And we'll talk about why it's called Red Rider. A little bit today. Right. Well, and the reason we're doing this, and 
you know, they keep talking about Red Rider, Red Rider, Red Rider throughout the movie, but when you watch that scene when he's looking in the window mm -hmm. of the toy store, when the camera pans over and, and you see the gun, the, the sign actually says Daisy. Right. Red Rider. So it is a Daisy uh, air gun or BB gun, whatever you want to call it, but they're made here in Northwest Arkansas, Rogers to yeah. be specific. Yeah. So we wanted to look into the story behind uh, the legend, yes. I guess. Yes. So uh, it dates back to 1882. The, the, the gun itself or the, or well, the company. The company. Right. Um, and it was actually based in Plymouth, uh Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And Makes sense, because in the late 19th century, Detroit was hopping with manufacturing. Right. Automobiles about to come around. Yep. Yep. Uh, steel. Right. Metals. Um, but this company, the Plymouth Iron Windmill Company, made metal iron windmills. Oh. That's the name. <laughs> um, and one day... One of the employees came in, and he had been tinkering with this air rifle. This that he was rifle. making. Well, someone else had made it. They okay. had made it of wood. I see. And this guy says, "I can do better than that, and and make it because we make metal." Mm -hmm. And so he brought it to the president, who was a guy named Lewis Huff, and he. Uh, showed it to him, they loaded it up and took it out back, and he shot it, and um, he loved it. And he made this exclamation ah. that, well, Joe Murphan, who uh, is with the Daisy Museum, explains here that it was a common expression at the time that gave it its name. Anyway, we've all had these little colloquialisms we use for superiority of things, but the saying in 1888, that's when this is, was, it's a daisy. And it simply means it's a good one. It's a great one. And I've had people challenge that and say, do you mean it's a doozy? But it's a doozy came along when the Duesenberg car became popular. So that was way forward in the future. This is, it's a daisy. And there are recordings of it as early as 1880s, so we know that's what they said. Now, as anything that's that old, there's at least two recordings of it, all through the Huff family. They've said, boy, it's a daisy, or Clarence, it's a daisy. But the it's a daisy part stuck. So for people who said, the, did you name the gun after a flower? Was it the founder's wife's name, something like that? No, it was just the saying. So... The first guns out there that were made actually are, are embossed on that top cocking lever, uh, Plymouth Iron Windmill Co., Plymouth Mish, because we used to use four letters for states, patent applied for Daisy. And Daisy was just the name of the gun, not the name of the company. That's Joe Murphan from a conversation you had with him at the Daisy Museum that's in downtown Rogers. Right. All right, I want to tell you something. This is one of my favorite pieces you've ever brought in because... I learned four things in about one minute from Joe Murphy. This guy's a wealth of information. First, I learned why Daisy guns are called Daisy. Yeah. Well, and if you remember the movie Tombstone, mm -hmm. uh, Val Kilmer, who played Doc Holliday, mm -hmm. there were several times in there 
he'll say it's a daisy. Yep, or you'll be a daisy if yes. you do. Yeah. So that was the in 1880. All right. So second okay. thing I learned okay. here is that yeah. daisy is was this exclamation for something that's right. Third, I learned that doozy comes from the Duesenberg automobile. Never knew that. Never knew that. And fourth, that in the late 19th century, we used four letters to abbreviate states. Oh, Mish. Yeah. So thank you, Joe Murphy, for four items of information. Well, there's more coming. Okay. Because I talked to him some more. But anyway, we pick it up with they start making these air rifles. Mm -hmm. And they would give them to their windmill salesmen as they would go out. And they were going to sell them for like $2 a piece. But then they also, it was sort of like a value added. If you buy a windmill, we give you a BB gun. Can I just stop you here and tell yeah. you how much I love thinking that somebody once had a job that was windmill salesman? That's, That's just a wonderful job to have. Okay, keep going. Yeah, well, they'd be in there, sure. you know, buckboard wagon. Right, and right. The problem was, you know, most windmills were made out of wood. Mm -hmm. These were made out of iron, and they were hard to transport. Heavy. Yes, and they were really hard to put together. It would take more than just a family to do it. You you would have to have quite a few people to assemble this thing. A windmill raising, if you will. Yes. Yes. But you'd have to have a lot more people <laughs> right. than a barn raising. Right. So in 1895, they changed the name of the company to Daisy because they just decided not windmills to make windmills. Windmills are out. Yep. yep. It's done. So... They're doing that for quite some time, and then in 1958 is when they made the move to Rogers. Now, I found a 1969 interview in the KETV archives with Cass Huff, who was the grandson of that Lewis Huff okay. who said, It's a Daisy. And um, he said, talks about in this interview how... They decided to make the move from a suburb of Detroit to northwest Arkansas. People had gotten to a point where they no longer took pride in their jobs and no longer were eager to use an old cliche, give a day's work for a day's pay. And a small business like ours, we have to have that kind of thing. So I began looking all over the country. I was in every state in the union looking for a place to move this business of ours, which is a pretty old business. We'd been there at that time some... 70-odd years, and it wasn't easy to even think about moving a business. Uh, however, I knew we had to move, and after, as I say, going all over the country, Arkansas appealed to me for many reasons. It's uh, climate, it's natural resources, but more particularly, it's people. And I've said many times, there are a lot of states in the Union that have good climate, that have a lot of natural resources, but the greatest resource that any state has, and it's here in abundance in Arkansas, is it's people. And I... Uh, can remember people saying to me, uh, what do the Arkansas people have that other people don't have? And this is an indefinable something, but it all sums up into a, a kind of a pride in a job and a pride of belonging to an organization that they have in, in great measure. I don't know what the population of Rogers was in 1958, but I'm going to guess 8, 9, 10, 12,000? Not, Not even that much. Okay. I think it was more like five. Okay. All right. So here they are, daisies coming to They bring Rogers. us. Well, um, Joe told me that they immediately brought 100 families up, mm. which just was a shot in the arm for the economy of this small town. I imagine. Yeah. So 
they've got that going for them, and they improve the uh, the airport, the runway, uh, because uh, Cass is a, a World War II hero, veteran mm-hmm. pilot, and um, he he does a lot of flying around the country to do his sales calls, and that is how he found Rogers. Oh landed there and just fell in love with the area. But let's talk about the Red Rider okay. and how that came about. So I went to the Daisy Museum, and Joe Murphy was really nice, showed me around, and he told me about how the Red Rider came about. Now, at the time that this, that this happened, they would find a kid that was outstanding or um, – athletic or well-known and they would name a rifle after him mm-hmm. and this advertising guy comes in and says now what happens if this kid grows up and does something horrible it's forward gonna, thinking that's forward it, thinking yes it's going to reflect badly on the company so he came up with this idea I own the rights to this character, Red Rider, and this comic strip, Red Rider, and we're all in these syndicated newspapers, and we have, you know, um, comic books coming out, and Fred Harmon is the artist, and he's a well-known Western artist, oil painter, beautiful work, but he also draws these comics, and he used to work, uh, he and Disney were uh, working at the same studio together at one time, he's very talented, you know, so he said, why don't you make a Red Rider pistol? This would be 1938, and Daisy didn't make a pistol until 1960, so they didn't have one. But one of the men working in the plant, one of the executives, was a guy named Bob Wesley. Bob goes in the back room, brings out a little carbine rifle, BB gun, and he had taken something and written Red Rider on it, kind of like a Red Rider logo, and he goes, how about something like this? Well, within two years, they were making Red Rider BB guns. All right, so Red Rider was, at the time, in the comics. Yes. Maybe not the most popular. It wasn't as popular as Dick Tracy or, or some of these others. But he was a pretty, he was very well known. Yes. And uh, done by an artist who was a well-known, mm-hmm. not cartoonist, mm-hmm. Western artist. Yeah. And I will, if... I have, because I'm me, and I sometimes have insomnia, I've gone back and found online many Red Rider strips from the 30s, 40s, or 50s. I've never seen one. They're I beautiful. need to look that They're up. They're beautiful. And wow. So if you, if you ever have time... Well, it, I'm going to do it right after this show. It will sh- remind you that at a, there was a time when comic strips were big yes. and in color, especially on Sunday, of course, mm-hmm. and, and they just held a different place in our popular entertainment world than they do now. And they were gorgeous. But oh, Rogers was Gordon, Flash Gordon. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. it was art in itself. I have read, and, anticip- and in anticipation of this interview, I wanted to confirm this, and I couldn't, but I had read at one point that the Red Rider um, licensing agreement with Daisy BB Guns is the longest continuous fictional character endorsement of a product in U.S. history. Wow. That I didn't know. And the second longest is Popeye with spinach, uh, with which is now owned by Alan Canning, Popeye mm-hmm. Spinach, also based in Arkansas. Yes. What, Alma? Yeah. Yeah. 
That's I am great. doing a jo- good job of taking us off topic today. I apologize. No, it's fascinating. Uh, I love it's something. when we go off topic. Yes, okay. <laughs> All right. So All we've, right. T- we've learned about Red Rider. Right. And so I was looking more and more in the archives, and I did come across a feature report from 1984 uh, when Chris Phillips uh, made the trip. And, you know, coming from from Little Rock to do it to do mm-hmm. a story is um, yeah it's a pretty good haul mm-hmm. and so she came up and went into the factory and uh, this is a portion of that report. The family who started this rifle empire more than 100 years ago recently acquired the company back. The now 79-year-old Cass Huff purchased the plant for an undisclosed figure. Years ago, it was windmills and not rifles the family wanted to sell. They just gave away the air guns with windmill purchases. But they ended up building an empire on the shooting recreation. As far as the future is concerned, company executives say some more non-gun products may be manufactured here. But for right now, they're just happy Daisy is back in the hands of the family who started the gun business long ago. Chris Phillips, New Scene 7, Rogers. All right, so that's from the factory. You spent time in the museum yes. recently. Yeah, and I still want to go to the factory. I'd mm-hmm. love to see that. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they make the, the BBs out of these, I think they're 2,000-pound coils of, of wire that they slice up and make into BBs. Oh, my gosh, I've got to see this happen. Yeah. I, I saw the video. I want to see it yeah. in person. Maybe we could make a trip up there. I bet we could. We'll beg Joe to there see you if go. he'll let us All in. Right. So, walking through the museum, I noticed other items that Daisy produced over the years, and Joe explained a, a few of them. Certainly, uh, toy guns dating back to, uh, I want to say, about 1908, maybe even a little earlier than that. They were making, uh, they called them liquid helium pistols. They were water guns is what they were, but they made cork guns and noisemakers and paper poppers and pop guns and uh, Oh, there was a uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century gun that looks like a spaceman's ray guns. And, you know, toy guns used to be fun, and we all grew up with them, people our age. I want to see this science fiction gun. Yeah. I want to see this. Well, what I was surprised about is I looked up, and I'm seeing all these different guns, and then I see a water pistol. Mm-hmm. And so they made everything, you know, like you said, the noise makers right. and, and that sort of thing. But my next, to me, natural question was, did they ever consider making firearms? And the answer is yes. Then in um, the late 80s, they developed a line of 22 guns called the Legacy. And they're absolutely beautiful guns. They all had octagon barrels. Some of them were wood. Some of them had synthetic stocks on them, but the wood was walnut. They were beautiful guns. And the idea of being your first gun was being a, was having a very inexpensive gun, right? That's your first one. You're not going to spend a lot of money. Instead, by the time they got these guns developed, they had a gun that competed more with a Winchester or a Remington than it did with a Savage or a Stevens, which is where they should have been. They built a Cadillac gun, and they should have been buying a building an entry-level Chevrolet. So uh, the bad news for Daisy was the guns didn't sell that bad because uh, sell that well because they were a higher-priced gun with a Daisy name on it. 
The good news for collectors today is the guns didn't sell that well. So there aren't that many of them out there and they're considered very collectible and they are a good little 22. So valuable to have one of those 22s, like he said, collectors. Yeah. Good news for collectors. Yeah. Good news for collectors. And um, this is what really surprised me is that they manufactured a lot more sophisticated weapon. So in 1987, Daisy made a 50 caliber uh, sniper rifle for Navy SEALs and for NATO forces. Wow. And there's one on display in the museum. I'm going to show an ignorance of firearm knowledge. Mm -hmm. 50 caliber. What Pretty is... big. Okay. Yeah, it's big. It's a big okay. shell. And, um, you know, there's there, there are interesting parts to this museum. There's also that I, I see a monitor with uh, Moonwalk. Mm-hmm. And a whole section with all these pictures, and I see a golf ball. Well, um, Alan Shepard, I believe it was Apollo 14, you know, s snuck a golf. A, I think it was a, an iron. Right. Uh, and I, I'm, they knew about it, but uh, he went out and hit a couple of golf balls. Yeah. And one, he hit it like 1,700 feet or something. <laughs> right. But one of them was a Daisy promotional golf ball, and it is up on the moon right now. <laughs> now, you say Daisy promotional. They didn't make the golf ball. No. They just, just it would be something they would hand out as a— Yeah. Like a— Yeah, like KTV used to have, you know, Paul Eel's golf ball. Right, right. But there's a picture, but this says Daisy on it. So the Daisy logo is on the moon. Yes. That is awesome. Yeah, and Joe actually, as a joke one year— put $4 million in the budget so he could go and retrieve it. <laughs> he needs to call up Bezos or one of these billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you ought to go by the museum and get the full story on the golf ball on the moon. Yeah. But all, all the stuff in there is is really cool looking. I even bought a uh, Red Rider myself. Yeah, you did. And a starter kit. I was showing it off in the in the office yesterday. Well, and you you before we did our in person thing at the Prior Center yes. Thursday night, you showed me that you had it. And by the yeah. way, thanks to everybody for coming out and watching online our first ever in person version. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We want to do it again. I think we may do it once or twice a year, and maybe even. Yeah. Take it on the road. We don't know. Someone suggested that last night. And yeah. We're interested. Maybe we could. I loved the video of Jimmy Driftwood you showed last night. Oh, he's, yeah. Where he's playing in his field in Timbo. And then gives a little history yeah. lesson about where the land came from. And if you missed it, it, you can go to the Prior Center and watch the archive version, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, just go to the KETV section. There's a search. Just put in Driftwood, and there will be several clips yeah. that come up. It'll have the description. You click on the description, and it takes you right to the clip. All right, we're going to do this again next week, right? Yes, I have no idea what we're going to do. All right, but you'll be here. It's been a busy week. Yes, it has. I'm just, I'm at a loss, but the show goes on. Yes, it does. So, got to come up with something. <laughs> Thank you, Randy <laughs> Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas. Oh, could, could we close with a little nostalgia? Yeah. Let's do an, an old... Uh, 
Daisy commercial. All right, we'll do that. I, I will tell people that they can find out about all sorts of Arkansas history by looking for the Pryor Center website in their search engine. Here we go. And I'll see you next week. It doesn't seem that long ago Mom would send me out of the house and I wasn't expected home till dinner. The boys and I would grab our Red Riders and make an adventure of each day, just hoping the sun would never go down. My love for hunting and the outdoors became tradition all those years ago. Something that great is easy to share and pass down because it never gets old. Some things have changed, but shooting that Daisy Red Rider, especially with grandkids, is more fun than ever. Go have an adventure. It all starts with a daisy. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, our militant grammarian is ready to share new thoughts, ideas, lessons, and yes, quizzes about language. Which would you use in this? She got her just desserts. <whistles> mm, I would, I would think, I would think two S's. We welcome back Catherine Schultz, our militant grammarian, and she has a quiz about language mistakes we all might make. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. You can also subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast to listen when you want to listen. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Open that door, Richard. Hey, Richard, open the door. The catchphrase, open the door, Richard, may be little remembered today, but it caught hold in American vernacular in the mid-1940s and spread like wildfire. And rhythm and blues pioneer Louis Jordan of Brinkley and Monroe County, heard here, can take some of the credit or blame for the phrase. It all stems from a comedy stage routine done by comic James Mason and perfected by Clinton Dusty Fletcher, but possibly dating back even further. Fletcher plays a drunkard coming home after a night of partying, only to discover he's lost his house key. The inebriated quips are occasionally punctuated with knocking and Fletcher yelling for his roommate, Richard, to open the door. The first musical version of this comedy bit was done by sax player Jack McVeigh, formerly of Lionel Hampton's band. Why, he don't know who he's throwing out of his joint. I go back in his joint and bust it down to the ground. Open the door, Richard! Louis Jordan charted open the door, Richard, in spring 1947, already months into the trend. In fact, New York radio station WOR banned any version of the song that year and even asked comedians to cease doing Richard material. Jordan's song version of Open the Door, Richard, incorporates much of the actual comedy routine into the song. Some of Dusty Fletcher's choice lines as spoken by Louis include, I'm going to drink to everyone's health until I ruin my own. The market became crowded with versions of the song, including by Count Basie, Hot Lips Page, and Jimmy Durante. Jack McVeigh quickly changed the name of his band to The Door Openers and recorded a flop, Open the Door Richard follow-up called The Keys in the Mailbox. The song's sketchy origins and quick ubiquity meant a lawsuit was in order. Dusty Fletcher and John Mason were given lyrical credit. Dusty Fletcher and Don Howell were given musical credit, although no one seems to know who Don Howell is. Some of the song versions didn't use any of the Open the Door Richard comedy routines, but only the refrain of Open the Door Richard. A version by Walter Brown with a tiny grime sextet underscores the popularity of Open the Door Richard. Richard answers out the window to the scene below. Everyone starts hollering at me to open the door. Phil Harris, Bing Crosby, Jack Benny. If I won't open the door for them, damn if I'll open it up for you, he says, asking, why can't you give a man a little peace? The answer is, that's what you've been getting. Open the door and give us a little peace. In this risque version at the end, they discover the door has been unlocked all along. Open the door, Richard! 
But I hate to be caught out on the street like this because it makes you look so common. Comedian Dusty Fletcher got into the music recording act too, issuing his own version of Open the Door Richard on national records with Jimmy Jones and his band. The record label calls Fletcher the originator. Side two of the record incorporates the longer part of the stage routine where Fletcher tries to gain entry with a ladder and gets beat up by a policeman. In 1945, Dusty Fletcher starred in a short film version of the Richard routine that helped solidify the popularity of the phrase. It was directed by William Forrest Crouch, who directed many of Louis Jordan's film vehicles. Using some broad black American stereotypes, Fletcher runs through the entire routine wearing Burt Williams-styled oversized shoes, white gloves, and a top hat from getting kicked out of the bar, going home, to the very physical bits with the ladder and the cop. A film sequel, Answer to Open the Door, Richard, was also made, starring Step and Fetch It. Why wouldn't Richard open the door there? Nothing salacious, but just another stereotype. Fetch It was too lazy. White hot through the mid-1940s, Open the Door, Richard has lived on. People of a certain age named Richard can attest to the number of times they've been asked to open the door. The phrase is referenced in separate Looney Tunes cartoons featuring Foghorn Leghorn and Yosemite Sam, among countless other media references. Beyond its many versions in English, the song has been recorded in several different languages. Rockabilly performer Billy Lee Riley of Pocahontas in Randolph County recorded it for Sun Records in Memphis, Tennessee in late 1957. Louis Jordan's version is one of several Jordan songs featured on the soundtrack to the Mafia 2 video game released in August 2010. In 1967, Bob Dylan and the band recorded a song called Open the Door Homer. However, the song's refrain is actually Open the Door Richard, I've heard it said before. Fairport Convention, Thunderclap Newman, and other bands of that era recorded Homer. The song appeared on Bob Dylan and the band's basement tape albums, although Arkansas' Levon Helm didn't play on most of the basement tape sessions. The phrase Open the Door Richard became one of several calls of the American Civil Rights Movement and racial integration battles of the 1950s and 60s as doors previously closed were demanded to be opened. With that, and the phrase's origins and minstrelsy, one could say Open the Door Richard has come full circle. Here in its entirety is rhythm and blues pioneer Louis Jordan of Brinkley and Monroe County with the song Open the Door Richard, only one part of the extensive Open the Door Richard catchphrase phenomena. Show was booted with liquid. He was what? He was abnoxicated. He was what? He was inebriated. He was what? Well, he was just plain drunk. Well, all right then. He sure was salted with the bartender. Bartender's trying to make him buy another drink. Zeke told the bartender, ain't no need of me buying no drinks when everybody else is buying them. I'm gonna drink to everybody's health till I ruin my own. Now look at that old woman across the street Done stuck her head out of the window Calling her sister Look at her hunching her sister saying Ain't that him? Ain't that him? Yes, it's me And I'm drunk again Open the door, Richard I know he's in there Cause I got on the clothes They can't throw him out Cause I owe just as much back rent here as he does Imagine that old woman charging us $3 a month And getting mad cause we 12 months in the arrears Come meet me last Thursday saying, ain't you boys gonna give me some back rent? I told her she'd be lucky if she got some front rent. Open the door, Richard! 
I'm standing here scratching in my pants pocket and standing here groping in my coat pocket and standing here feeling in my shirt pocket and I can't find the key. Hey, open the door, Richard! Louis Jordan of Brinkley and Monroe County with Open the Door, Richard, part of the Open the Door, Richard catchphrase phenomenon of the mid-1940s and well beyond. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Gravett. Contributors to our program today included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Our underwriting director at KUAF is Ryan Versey. If you have any questions about underwriting, send him an email, ryan at kuaf.com. Our theme is titled The First Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Our show today put together inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. I'm Kyle Kellums. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for another brand new edition of our program. Don't forget, you can always ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent edition of our daily show. Thanks so much for being here. Have a splendid rest of your Monday. The Momentary in Benville presents Grammy Award-winning country band Brothers Osborne, Saturday, July 15th, live outdoors on the Momentary Green. This concert is part of the Momentary's Live on the Green concert series. Brothers Osborne tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville. WRegional.com slash HerHealth to learn more.